podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to The Racket Report. I'm Frank Morano. This is the podcast that uh, brings you behind the curtain of a very mysterious world, the world of La Cosa Nostra. Well, uh, this is a rare treat because a decade ago, I had the opportunity to read a book which would have been fascinating if it had been written by anyone. And yet this book, which deals with uh, a lot of self-discovery, a lot of self-reflection, was written by someone with an incredibly famous last name. And it would be written, it would be interesting if it was written by the daughter of anybody that was well known. But when you take into account the fact that it was written by the daughter of one of America's most notorious, most famous organized crime figures, it makes it even more fascinating. And when you take into account the fact that it was written by someone whose life it was a total mystery, even though so many New Yorkers and so many Americans knew who he was. It's even more fascinating. I'm very, very pleased uh, to be joined by Rita Giganti, not only the uh, daughter of uh, longtime uh, mob boss Vincent Chin Giganti, but the author of the book, The Godfather's Daughter, and someone who's made quite a name for herself in her own right. Rita, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure, honey. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, whenever I've uh, sent people the interview that we did, and it was a short interview about 10 years ago, uh, a lot of people always ask me the same two questions about you. They always ask, when did uh, when did you know your father was in the mob and when did you know that your father wasn't crazy? But I want to kind of uh, turn the tables on them because so much of the book that you wrote deals with a lot of uh, discoveries about things that was going on in your lo- your own life. And the fact that you came from a, a pretty traditionally conservative Italian Catholic family, a lot of folks are going to wonder when your father learned that you were gay. Uh, when did you tell him that or when did he learn that? Because I have to think that might have been a a pretty difficult thing, not I have to think, you write very candidly that this was a pretty difficult thing for you to come to terms with vis-a-vis your family background. Yes, definitely. Um, I knew at 11 years old, um, you know, you just know things and that's something I knew. Um, and I also knew at that age that I couldn't tell anybody. I didn't feel safe enough to tell anybody. Um, so although I didn't know who my father was till I was about 16, I knew he was very important. And when I came out, I was 19. So what was happening with me was because I couldn't speak my truth or live my truth, my body would get ill very often. I'd go into deep depressions, I'd have anxiety, panic, um, OCD. Um, These were things that were, you know, plaguing me from the time I was five years old and um, a lot of upper respiratory infections. So the pneumonia even, I mean, it was, it was, you know, constant, constant, constant. And at 19, I thought if I could just speak my truth, if I could just come out and 
you know, um, live, you know, because we, we were very sheltered um, in my home. And uh, again, being from an Italian Catholic family, women, you know, women were suppressed. We were told we had to, you know, stay home, cook, clean, get married, have kids and take care of our mother. That was the extent <laughs> of the life. So for me, um, this was very important. And I, I don't know what, honestly, what gave me the balls to do it. But the day I did it, he was visiting my home in Altapan, New Jersey. And I um, had just picked that day. I was 19 and I um, was standing outside the bedroom door of my mom and dad. And I knocked on the door and they asked me to come in and I'm sitting on the bed and I'm shaking. My hands are sweating and um, I'm just, you know, they know something's wrong. They could see it. And so they said to me, what, what's wrong? What's the matter? And I said, I have something to tell you. And they said, okay, you know, what is it? And I said, I like women, you know, I'm, I'm gay. I like women. And honestly, it would have been the best thing that could have happened was he would have got up and slapped me because then I would have known something was, you know, like, like it, it would have been the real, real thing for him. Right. He took the most opposite approach. I, I, Never thought he would remain so calm, which scared the shit out of me. Um, he remained so calm, and he just said to me, look, you know, kids your age, they experiment, they go through things, they, you know, you're just going through a phase. It'll go away. You're just going through a phase. And, you know, I, I, and I saw the look, you know, I had, my dad had this kind of look, and I saw the look, and, you know, I saw my mother looking at him, almost strangely too. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm in deep shit here. I am in trouble. That I, At that moment, I wished I could have, you know, taken the, just for a second, like taken the, after I said it, just take it right out of the air and put it right back in my mouth, <laughs> the words. And I said, you know what? I said, you're right. I said, I'm, I'm just going through a phase. I said, I'm, you know, and then he proceeded to tell me, you know, um, why don't you not hang out with your girlfriends anymore? You know, why don't you stay away from your girlfriends for a while, not hang out with them? I said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And I got up and I walked out of the room devastated. Went in my room, I cried my eyes out, and I couldn't believe I was back in the closet again. I, so, I have to think that would be challenging for anybody to deal with, but you had seen at a very young age your father inflict uh, violence on someone else. I have to think that's a pretty traumatic experience for for anybody. And uh, to have to uh, come to grips with uh, somebody like your father who you've seen be violent and who you've heard, uh, you know, make clear how he felt about gay people or people he even mm -hmm. thought was gay. That had to be an incredibly intimidating moment for you. Incredibly. I, I don't even, you know, it was almost surreal. I, I had come out of my body at one point. I remember, I, you know, like I'm, I'm sitting there and I remember thinking, I felt separate from myself, um, you know, just out of fear. Cause that's when I experienced what I did with my dad at the age of five, it began a series of anxiety attacks that led into panic attacks. Um, and I very, I don't want to say, um, so what happens when, when there's so much trauma in a child's life, what happens is they end up trying to separate themselves from what's happening. And so that's what I would do. I was, I didn't know at the time, but I was an empath. And for people who don't know what that is, that's 
someone who could feel everything and everyone, um, all types of energy. So I could feel my dad's energy, my mom's. I knew when someone was depressed. I knew when they were, you know, uh, when they were upset. I knew all these things and I would carry them in me. Um, I couldn't tell the difference between my own energy and somebody else's. So anytime the trauma happened, it was almost like I, w- I needed to separate myself from my body because I couldn't handle it. My body couldn't handle it. And then I would have to process it at some point in the life. So there's many explain to folks that happened. Explain to yeah. folks what you saw when you were five years old involving your father and how that kind of was a game changer for you. So I was playing um, underneath my grandmother's um, dining room table, which, you know, it was a four room apartment. And the biggest thing in the, in the whole space was the dining room table. So I was under there and it was um, Italian music playing in the background. And I was just, I think I was drawing something or I was just playing with something and I was hanging out. My grandmother and my mother were upstairs in in another apartment and um, nobody knew I was under there. And so when my dad came in, I heard all this ruckus and I heard my father wasn't one to speak and never was, hadn't been on a phone in 40 years that, you know, until he went to jail. And so, you know, phones were off the hook. TVs were always going, the radio was going. So I'm listening to the Italian music and I hear him come in. There's, you know, and there's this man who he's has a hold of. Now, I don't know him, it's my dad yet because I'm not hearing him speak, but what I hear is punching. I can hear, I can hear him actually, you know, hit the man's face and immediately my body started to shake and, you know, I started to cry, but not outwardly. Like I knew not to make a noise. And I just remember the man hitting the floor in slow motion. Mm. And I saw him hit the floor and I started to see the, you know, the blood trickle. And then I just saw my father's hand keep hitting him. And I only knew it was my dad's hand because he wore a pinky ring and it was his. And he just kept hitting him and hitting him. And the blood just kept trickling to my feet. And I was immediately, you know, overtaken by the anxiety and, and, um, and panic of it all. And he didn't say a word, my dad, he finished, he stepped on his head and he said in a whisper, I'm done with him. Get him out of here in a whisper. And I heard it and they picked him up bodily, took him out. And then my mother came, you know, like a little time passed and my mother came down and she said, where's Rita? And he goes, I don't know. And, you know, I hear this and I'm like, I couldn't speak. I could not speak, but they found me and I was a basket case from that point on. I was petrified that if I did anything wrong, that my father would hurt me. You So much of your father's life, at least as the public knew him, but also apparently in various other aspects of his life, had to do with his uh, persona and his identity as uh, as a gangster. Ultimately, he became the uh, the boss of the Genovese crime family, one of the most powerful positions in the underworld, uh, and really something that was uh, sought after by a lot of underworld types. They would have loved to have been in his position, or so they thought. You alluded to the fact that you learned about who he was in terms of being a mobster when you were around 19. How did you come to learn that he was involved in organized actually, crime? Actually, I was 16, 16 and I was in high school. Me. Yeah, no, that's okay. 
I was in high school and, you know, I would hear a lot of things that kids would say. There were, there were, you know, there were kids that could hang out with me and then there were kids that could not hang out with me and I never understood why. Okay. Um, my mom made very few friends um, that knew who he was. And um, I was, you know, I was hearing it, but not quite know what it meant, didn't pay attention to it. In my house, you know, I, as a kid, you just knew not to ask questions. So, um, so I never asked. I never, I just watched. I became, you know, I listened. I became the, the eyes and the ears of everything, but never, ever asked. And so I would hear these rumors. And then there was this one girl that um, she was almost like taunting me. You know, she would call me the mafia princess and she would spread all these things in school. And, you know, I, in, in that moment, I had just had enough of it all. And I mean, of course, you know, I look back now and God knows I would, would not want to raise my hands again, but um, I pinned this girl in the bathroom and I just beat the shit out of her. And, and I said that I'll never talk about my family again, but the ironic thing was after I hit her, you know, my, my friend was with me and I remembered this clear as a bell. And she said, hurry up. Somebody's coming like one of the teachers. And I, I remember hitting her for the last time, and I said, I'm done with you. And I remember wow. the words at five years old, but I didn't know why. Like, those words stuck with me, but I didn't know why, because I did not remember that memory of five years old till I started writing my book. That is, that, and that was the strangest thing to me. So, it, you know, I mean, it's funny how things stick with you, but you, you just don't know why until mm. it uncovers itself, you know? So that's, so what happened was after that happened, I was beside myself filled with blood. I went to a friend's house that knew my family and I begged to know the truth. And she said, I can't believe they haven't told you. And she sat with me and she told me everything. And in that moment, there was a tremendous amount of relief because not knowing things for so many years gave me more anxiety. And then the other part, I was scared. And then all of a sudden, every piece of the puzzle got snapped into place. Every question I had in my mind just snapped right into place. And I was like, oh, my God. I can imagine. I just want to tell folks, if they're interested in reading the book, it's called The Godfather's Daughter. It's available on uh, Amazon. They could search uh, Rita Gigante, G-I-G-A-N-T-E, an unlikely story of love, healing, and redemption. And folks can also go to your website, RitaGigante.net, and uh, there's a lot of interesting information on there, which we'll talk about in a second, but they could also check out uh, your books on there as well. You talk about uh, some of the things that you observed as a young person. One of the things that you observed, which the whole world observed, was your father acting strangely. I, I think your your father is probably uh, well known even three decades later for wandering around uh, Greenwich Village in a bathrobe, sometimes muttering incoherently. You write that you saw doctors come and see your father and he would act this way regularly. And your sister Yolanda, who seemed to be in the unenviable position to often uh, tell you news that nobody else wanted to tell you, she explained to you that your father was a, a paranoid schizophrenic. Tell folks how that conversation went. It was it was later on in life 
Um, it was, I was, you know, I, at the time I found out he was who he was, then I was told, you know, he was sick. I mean, I was told my whole life he was sick, but, um, it, it was more that he had a heart condition, but, um, I was told from a young age, if anybody asks about daddy, tell, you know, tell him, tell them he's sick. And the conversation with my sister didn't go that way necessarily. It was more of, okay, this is what it is. And this is, you know, this is what you have to tell people. Like, you know, if anybody asks, this is, this is what he has. Now, you know, for me, I was like, well, can we all get it? You know, I didn't understand Mm. at first that it was a ruse, you know, can we all get this? Like, is it, so I was petrified, you know? Um, And then of course the realization was it wasn't that. And, um, and I had to accept the fact that he would check himself into, you know, mental hospital in New York anytime he thought the FBI was on him, but this was all part of him, you know, creating a record for himself that he was ill. And it was really the hardest part to me because witnessing those people, you know, it was like he was making a mockery of them. And I was devastated for that. So you did believe that for at least a time that your father's mental illness was, was real. You didn't always know that it was a put on. No, no. When I was younger, I, I thought, you know, that this was my God, you know, he had an illness. I mean, if you saw what, if you witnessed what I did, you would believe it. You would actually Mm. believe it because I read all about it. I've seen them in the hospitals. I'm like, my God, he could have won an Academy Award. You would occasionally walk around with him, uh, especially as you got older. And I'm, I imagine by this time, you knew that this was uh, was a put on. Tell me what's going into it, what's going on in your head when you're walking around Greenwich Village and uh, you're basically participating in in yes. this act. Yes. Um, Why'd you do it? So it was well because he was my dad and I loved him. And I didn't want anybody to hurt him, meaning the FBI. And um, I struggled, though, very hard with it. I totally struggled. I would listen. I'm I'm a very, very how do I want to put it when it comes to family? You know, when it comes to anybody that I love, I'm fiercely loyal, even though I didn't love what he did. I loved him. And and eventually I, I forgave him for for it all. So, you know, when I was participating at the time. I was participating because he was my father and that's what he needed. And so I would walk with him and I'd struggle in my mind saying, this is, this is crazy. I knew it was crazy. Um, but you know, I was also very loyal. And so people would walk by and give that look. Someone would either tip their hat and like to say, hello, Vincent, we, we love you. Cause he would protect the neighborhood and make sure everybody was fed and, and their rents were paid. Um, and then there were others that would look at him strangely and I'd be like, back off. That's my father. You know, um, you don't understand the whole situation and nobody does. Nobody gets what all of us had to experience in this life um, in that in, in this family. So, you know, everybody looks at it with the glory and, and there wasn't glory. Um, there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of fear around it. So walking with him was not easy. 
but it, but I did it. And, um, and that's, you know, something that I had to live with and know that I participated and forgive myself for. How did your upbringing and your relationship with your father differ from the one that your siblings had with him? Well, I was a change of life baby. My father was 37. My mother was, I'm sorry, my father was 38. My mother was 37. The child above me was 10 years older than me. So they were, you know, my, my oldest sister was 15 years older than me, almost 16 years. Wow. Um, and they were out of, a lot of them were out of the house early. I don't even remember having dinners um, in Old Japan with them, really. Um, because, you know, I, I grew up in both, I grew up, you know, half in the city, half out in Jersey. But still, I was six months old when I came out here. You know, and my, I was six when my sister got married and had her first child. So, you know, and then my other sister and then my brother. There was only one other brother left. And, um, you know, we were 10 years apart, you know. So I was, I was a change of life baby, you know. And it was different because um, my dad didn't, I didn't have, I, I almost sometimes envy part of what they had because they knew him differently. Mm. They knew him as a father as well, and not just, you know, he, who he was in the street. For me, I just, you know, he was so afraid because I was, he would think I was fragile or weak because of my anxieties and my panics and my depression and all that. So he would never, ever yell at me or hit me or anything like that. Um, and he was very comforting at times to me because he would rub my back or my head. I'd put my, you know, when I was not feeling well. And so they got to experience a dad in a different sense, you know, even if it wasn't a hundred percent, but he would come home at three o'clock in the morning with, you know, cake and both my sisters would get up, you know, they were sleeping and they would get up and sit and have cake with him, you know? So he, he was, he exhibited that side, you know, and I enjoyed the parts of him that I would get him. I would be able to get, cause he loved Elvis Presley. So I'd be able to get him up, even though he had two left feet. You know, and he would shimmy if I had Elvis Presley on, you know, like there were sides of him where he would come out of his, we'll say his act or whatever, and be a dad and then go right back in because he had to. How far would he take that whole uh, mental illness charade? You mean when a doctor came or? Well, both just in general. I mean, how much of his life was he playing this, this character? I would say most of it from as long as I can remember, I mean, I've seen him get dressed normally, but I've probably seen him more in a bathrobe and slippers than I've seen him in regular clothes in my hmm. lifetime anyway. So, yeah, I mean, he, you know, the doctors would come to the house and he would have a crazy conversation with them and mimicking the, you know, the cartoons that were on and everything. And he took it as far as he could. I know that uh, last year you uh, had two uncles pass away. I don't know if you were you were close with them at all. I know one was involved in organized crime, supposedly, and the other was very involved in politics and also a priest. Uh, you know, did you get to know either of them at all? Uh, especially uh, your uncle Lewis was very well known in the community in the Bronx, and there was a lot of people uh, commenting and celebrating his life when he passed away. Yeah, he did a lot of good for the Bronx. Um, he really did. He helped a lot of people. I did not know them the way my other siblings knew them. I mean, I, 
you know, you, you see them at a wedding, you see them at a funeral, sure. you see them at a, an event. I mean, when I was younger, you know, you saw them more, but God, it's, it's been so many years, so many years. I don't even know my cousins really, to be honest with you. Well, that's um, what I was going to ask. It, it, it came yeah. out uh, after uh, your uncle Lewis passed away that he had fathered a son. And I was just curious if you had uh, made any kind of connection with, with someone who's your oh, first we, cousin. We do know him. Yeah, we do yeah. know him. I haven't seen him in years, but yeah, he's a nice kid. He really is. But again, it's like at a wedding. You know what I mean? It's not It's not where we regularly get together. Sure. Sure. Uh, weddings and funerals, yeah. believe me, is uh, coming from an Italian family. Uh, I know yeah. how that goes and who moves away and what, what goes on. But it did seem like while your Uncle Lewis went down a very different path, uh, public service, charity, politics, uh, the Catholic priesthood, he remained a very dogged defender of your father. I'm wondering if you could speak to that relationship at all. It's almost cinematic in a lot of ways. Well, again, we're talking about, you know, his brother. They were close. And um, he had influence because he was a priest. And my dad could help them as well. So this was a, this was a, I would say, an equal partnership in that sense, you know. So he didn't, he helped a lot of people, my uncle. But, you know, my father was part of that, being, helping him to help them. Um, and then he would have some influence with people, my uncle. So... Yeah, he was very loyal to him. Where did your father's nickname of Chin come from? My grandmother, because Vincenzo is his name, and Chinzi is short, so Vincenzo. And then Chin came of that, you know, on the street when he was uh, growing up. So when people say the Chin, that's inaccurate, right? That's one of those things that uh, is frequently misquoted. It's just Chin. Yes. Gotcha. Um, you know, it's one thing to have to deal with knowing about your father's uh, criminal history. Another thing, uh, having to know about him uh, and seeing, in one instance at least, him being a violent person. But uh, his infidelity has also become really well known. Obviously, you love your mother. It seems like you were very close with your mother. What What was that like for you, uh, learning about your father being unfaithful to her and how did you uh, reconcile that along with the other negative aspects of his personality with someone that you clearly looked up to and and loved as much as anybody for me it was a process um through the life of forgiveness with him so um when i started my work as a psychic medium healer um and i had to um deal with all these aspects of him um, I knew that if I held on to anger and, and rage and all of that, it would only be hurting me. Um, it wouldn't be hurting anybody else. And I had to really look at him as a human being. It's the only way I could get a hold of actually understanding where he came from. And so in that life, it's very, what they say, the norm to have a, somebody on the side, right? Um, a paramour, a gumad, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's a normal thing in that in that life, we'll say. I did not know that um, he was with this woman and that he had children until my 20s. So hmm. we did not know of them and we did not learn um, about them until much later on in life. And so this was extremely hard for me because I would see the love between my mother and father, but I didn't never understood why my mother was so depressed. 
and and angry at times with him and you know um she would go into deep depressions and i would try to help her with that and the the only you know the only thing i could do was be a good daughter you know i was the closest to her in a sense because i was the last and um she clung to me and so you know we had a great bond so learning of it very difficult um because his his response was i didn't do anything to you guys i did it to your mother which is not mm-hmm. true obviously were his children. Um, then I got to meet them, and you know we had a we had a nice um, conversation at first, and I knew them, and sometimes we would go out and hang out, and it was very nice. Um, and then you know so many things happened in between my dad going to jail and passing away and all that, me writing a book, which cut off all ties to to them. But even before that, even before the book, there was no real real connection. But it was extremely painful for my mother right to the end. I had to walk through life light with her, you know, with that with that knowing. And forgiving him was not easy. But, you know, I had to see the pieces of him that were my dad and were just a human being and not this man who followed a life. For him, it was all about the power. It was really never about the money at all. And his ego got the best of him. I want to talk about what you're doing now and and the incredible things that you've been doing over the course of the last uh, couple of decades. But um, last question about your your father directly. Here he is almost 20 years after he's passed away. People are still talking about him. People are still fascinated by him. They're still writing books about him. They're still making uh, newspaper references to him. There's literary allusions to him. What do you think it was about your father that has the public so fascinated by him, even to this day, almost two decades after he's passed away? Well, he's an enigma. I mean, he really is. But he's a very charismatic energy, my dad, even in the spirit world. And when he comes to me, he's a very strong energy. And he was well liked by so many. People loved him, not just, you know, because he he would help them or this or that. They loved him um, because he was just a good human being. They loved my grandmother. Um, and, you know, that was, that she was also well known in the neighborhood, we'll say. We couldn't go anywhere without somebody speaking to her. And it was, I really feel like people could see the good in him. At least that's my take on it. And I'm grateful for that because I, I listen, I don't excuse or condone any of it, but I know that there were pieces of him that were good. I think people, I think sometimes people just write stuff just to write it, you know, because they they want yeah, they either want to be known or they want, you know, they want to put the, the the stuff out there again still and but they don't really know the truth. You know, they're just they're just throwing it in an article or, you know, making stuff up because like my my uncle died, we had to write a whole article, you know, about this, that and the other thing. Same stuff over and over again, nothing new, mm. nothing different. You know, it's just it's drama. And it's it's sad because my whole purpose in the work that I do is to show people forgiveness, compassion, and the fact that they can get through anything in this life if they really want to, um, and not to be a victim to your circumstances because you're not. So I see it from a very different perspective than most. I'm tired of the newspaper articles and all of that because it's just nonsense at this point. Let's let's show it from a different light. So that's that's my job. 
you are a psychic, a healer, and a medium. And I know some people can be one of those things or multiple of those things. And uh, I'm wondering the medium aspect of it, somebody that communicates with people that have uh, passed on. When did you learn that you had that ability? And is that something that uh, that's a, a talent that you hone? Or is that something that you either have or don't have? Everybody has abilities. I learned about mine when my father passed. So I was, I would be a psychic, I would say a psychic healer and even a teacher because I've taught this stuff um, most of my life. When my father died, it's the first time I realized I could be a medium because he came to me. And so I had to hone that skill, but I had to hone all of the skills. Now, everybody has skills. It's just who's going to use them and to what degree in this life are you going to use them? Everybody has gut instincts. You know, everybody has a feeling about something. It's even more prominent now than it ever was. I just came to do it as a living. Others may just do it as a mother in their home or as a father or whatever it is. But there is a sensitivity that comes with it. Some people are comfortable with that and others are not. But everybody has them. And I, you know, this is, this is what I, I teach people when they want to learn. I teach them how to hone in on their skills. It took me and, years and years to cultivate what I do now. And if people want to uh, do some cultivating of those skills and learn a bit more from you and what you're doing, they can go to RitaGiganti.net. In, in terms of being a medium, do you communicate yeah. with both of your parents regularly? And, and what kind of things do they say to you? Yes, I do. I communicate with them regularly because... I don't feel like they're really gone. I feel like I can call them up anytime and just have a conversation. I just can't do it physically, obviously, although I've dreamed about them. And that's, that's like having a visit. Every time they come in your dreams, it's a visit. What do we talk about? Um, like sometimes we talk about what's going on there, what they're experiencing. Sometimes they talk about me and what's going on here. If I need to help somebody, you know, uh, my father and my mother will come into my readings if necessary to help someone. So it's, it's a multitude of things, but it's a, a really big comfort to feel their energy and know that I can, you know, dial them up anytime and have a conversation. Um, and that's really what people want to hear. They want to know that they can connect. The people's family members want to talk to them, not me, but I act as the catalyst, you know, and, and, I, and in the process, I'm showing them how they can do it so that they don't have to rely on anybody else, that we all have those skills. Even if you walk around the village today, there are a couple of psychic shops where you can go for a reading on a one-on-one -on -one basis and people will, uh, will tell you what's going on in your life and try and give you some guidance. You are what's described as a stand-up psychic. You do a lot of your psychic readings before a large crowd. I explain to folks uh, what that entails and what folks will, will see if they ever go to one of your stand-up psychic shows? So um, I use a lot of levity in my shows. Um, Spirit is very funny. We created, I, I had created a while back a, um, a one woman show called a, a sit down with spirit. And I took the sit down, you know, from my father's life and I created it to be positive. And so, um, you know, spirit put me on stage and um, I was able to connect to people in a, in, in a big way about spirit and about my dad and how the change of that, how that all those things that happened in my life changed me 
you know, who I became today. And But it was very, very, I want to say for me, so satisfying to be able to, you know, reach as many people as I couldn't. But it was very intimate, even though there was like 100 people in the room. It was very, very intimate. So I, I use a lot of levity. I bring in the energies from the other side. Some people are getting readings when I'm doing it, um, whether it's psychic or mediumship, because I could be in the space simultaneously. So it's it's engaging. You know, I'm engaging the audience and people love that and they love to be able to ask questions. And so um, that's what I do. Even in small groups, I do that. I, I have groups of 10, 12, 15 people and I'm, you know, I'm doing the same thing. And and what what I'm realizing is that people are getting more than just the experience of speaking to their loved one. They're experiencing a healing within themselves or knowing that, my God, there, this, there is something on the other side, we are going to see them again. Hmm. That's huge. You know, that's huge for people. Uh, that sounds terrific. I, I'd love to uh, go to one of your shows sometime soon. And if uh, if people are interested in uh, seeing more of what you've done, and, and a lot of it's on YouTube or learning more about these shows, again, they can go to RitaGiganti.net. Now, you're also a healer. Uh, what, is, yeah. what does that entail? What What will people seek you out in terms of healing what specific ailment or ailments well the beauty of the of having experienced i want to say anxiety panic ocd physical symptoms that i didn't understand why the beauty of that is that i could understand a lot of different people so when i was in massage school for instance that's how i realized i was a healer because i would put my hands on somebody and immediately feel the energy and be able to know what was going on in their body, whether it be there was something wrong with their liver, their kidneys, their heart. Um, maybe they had an endocrine disorder or something like I would get all these messages and then I would be telling them, this is what I got. And they would be like, oh my God, how do you know that? And I said, I don't know. I just, I just know I put my hands on you and I felt it. What I do with people is, again, I'm just a conduit. The people are healing themselves. I want everybody to understand this. We are all our own healers. For me, I connect to spirit, I connect to the person, spirit guides, and then I connect to the person while I'm doing it. And I ask them, is this something you wanna do? Would you like to be healed? And they say yes or no, because if they say no, then I cannot put my hands on them. They have to, it's free will, so they have to agree to it. Once I put my hands on them, the energy comes through me into them and they are doing the healing themselves between them and spirit it has nothing to do with me. That piece. Wow. Uh, Rita, I, I yeah. think what you're doing is, is great. And I'd love to, uh, see this in person and uh, work with you in person. And, uh, if uh, people are interested in that, they can go to your website, RitaGiganti.net. but you know, better than anybody, how cynical New Yorkers are and how cynical the New York talk radio audience is. And a lot of people are going to listen to our conversation and say that you're trying to capitalize on your father's notoriety and the fact that you have a famous last name. What would you say to those folks? I would say it's none of my business what they think because they, not, not only is it, this is something spirit would tell me all the time when I would question things like that. And they, they'd say to me, that's none of your business. That's their journey. And they're allowed to believe what they need to believe. And you just go and you do the work that we tell you to do. And that's that. So I don't take offense to any of it because everybody is in a, you know, on their own, you know, life path. So mm -hmm. they need to experience what they need to experience. I would have never come out with a book 
if I listened to everybody that said I was capitalizing on something or I was this, I was that, I would have never come out with my story. But I knew it was for the greater good. I knew I was going to help a lot of people. I was told that. And that's what I have to follow, my heart. I can't, I can't, you know, listen every time someone says something negative. I would never be doing my work if I did. Because a lot of people don't believe in psychic mediums either, you know, right, or healers. Right. You know, I can get that end of it as well. And I'm like, well, I'd be happy to help anybody that would like to be helped. But I'm not here to change anybody's mind or convince anybody of anything. It's not my job. Rita, it is a, a treat to talk with you. Wishing the best of luck with uh, your work. I want to encourage everybody, if they're interested in learning more about your story and your uh, really incredible upbringing, to check out the book, The Godfather's Daughter. It's available on Amazon or through your website. Thanks so much for the time. It's been an honor, honey. Thank you. Thank you. Let's do it again soon. Rita Giganti. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. And uh, if somebody sent it to you, please be sure to subscribe. You can search The Racket Report on uh, any podcast app. And until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.